Hallelujah. So I'm doing something different. We're doing a series on Hebrew perspectives, and uh, so I'm not taking a text on this stuff. If you weren't here last week, I can't go over all of that. Uh, we talked about impurity uh, and sin in the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus. And we talked about ritual impurity, right? And we talked about moral impurity. Well, tonight we're going to do part two of that, which is sacred space. And we talked a little bit about sacred space last week. So a Hebrew perspective on sacred space. So there were places that if you were ritually impure, you could not go. And the purpose of these laws were to teach you that God is distinct from us. That we are human and fallible and we age and we have disease and he does not. Right? And so if we were in any of these conditions, we couldn't go into sacred space. So tonight we're going to talk about the development of that whole process and get you into the New Testament. So the first thing that has to happen to get a Hebrew perspective is you have to have an adjustment in your thinking. All right, Because we are Westerners and we think concretely. We think if we read it in the English Bible, that's exactly the way it is verbatim. That is not the way the scripture is and that's not the intent of narrative scripture either. To just give you a lot of, uh, it's what we call mythic thinking or abstract thinking. A lot of Hebrew is abstract thinking. It's not concrete. All right, it can have multiple meanings depending on the context. All right, uh, and mythic mythic stories are stories that have a divine or supernatural character in the story. That's what that means. It does not mean that the Bible stories are fairy tales. That's not what we're trying to say. It's just a different perspective of thinking. Okay, um, I'll give you an example of myth, mythic thinking on this next one. I think. Uh, yeah, the Hebrew word for sea could have a definite meaning of a specific body of water, or it could have an abstract meaning like chaos, unpredictability, fearful place, right? You don't live in the sea. Humans don't live in the sea, right? We go onto the sea, we go out and swim, but you can drown there. You can be overtaken in a storm there. Chaos was considered the sea, and I'll give you an example. Like if you go to Revelation 21.1, and you're looking, you'll find that there is a crystal sea in the New Jerusalem. But then John says, then there is no more sea. He means there's no more chaos. God has conquered all. There's no more uncharted territory. There's no more fearful or dangerous place. So the word can have a definite meaning, and it can have an abstract meaning as well. All right, you with me? Don't go to sleep yet. Sacred space is is not scientifically testable, okay? It is an ideal conveyed through metaphors and rituals. Sacred space is God's turf, all right? God's turf. And you can't just, the idea of sacred space is he is so distinct, so transcendent, so other, that you can't just walk into his space in any old way, right? In your normal human condition. There were rituals, there were processes to help you overcome ritual impurity, bathing, quarantining, sometimes a sacrifice could be offered. But sacred space is where God is encountered in a special or direct way, which makes the place holy and set apart for ordinary space, right? That's the thing that you need to understand there. So let's 
Sacred space is where God is or has appeared. It's set off from the normal or mundane space, and it's also land that God has claimed as his own. That's also sacred space, and I'll show you that as we go through the Old Testament overview. So let's look at an Old Testament overview of sacred space. All right, and if you need to understand where I'm coming from, there, there's a book by Jonathan Clowens. Uh, it's called Impurity and Sin in Ancient Judaism, and most of this is coming from there. It's not my research alone, but a lot of it's coming from there, okay? So where's the first sacred space? Yeah, right? You realize that that was set up like the temple, all right? That was God's turf. That was God's place. And a lot of people will tell you, well, Eden was, was the whole world. No, it had boundaries. Remember what the command to Adam was. Go and subdue the earth. What is he saying? Go make the rest of the earth like Eden. Expand the sanctuary of the abode of God. Bring it under your authority and power and make it beautiful and reflect the glory of God like Eden does. So that's the first sacred space where God dwells. All right, outside of Eden needs to be subdued. That's where God is not. God is not out there. Same thing with the land of Israel, okay? That's why you see the ideal about Gentiles being unclean because the border of Israel was sacred space. Outside there, God was not there. It's not denying the omnipresence of God. It's denying the manifest presence of God in those places. There's no pillar of fire by night or pillar of cloud by day like Israel had. There's no unique manifestation of God in those places. Um, so, next one. Thank you. After Babel, sacred space is localized. In other words, it's Eden's one place. If you want to encounter God, you had to be in Eden, right? And Babel, after that, it starts to move around until we get to the tabernacle. And Babel is an interesting place because it's man's attempt to create sacred space. Who planted a garden in Eden? See, God knows what's sacred about him, what's unique about him, and he fashions a place after who he is. Babel is man's attempt to say, look, we're going to make a place for you, and then we want you to come and see us. In other words, we want you to come on our terms. Does that sound familiar to modern church ears? Right? We're going to do it our way, and we want you to just show up because you said you would, right? <laughs> and so, what, what, is, what is God doing at Babel? What's he saying when he confuses their language? He said, no, it doesn't work that way, bro. <laughs> I set the space. I tell you how it should run, and then I show up as long as you come in with respect and reverence for that place. And, and it's an attempt to get to him. It's really, you know... You could say an early form, an ancient form of legalism, a way to get to him, right? They said, let's make a name for ourselves and a temple that reaches to the heavens, all right? So the Tower of Babel is probably by most, most of your uh, experts and theologians say it was a ziggurat. It looked like that. It's not the Tower of Pisa like you're thinking. They didn't have, they didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the technology to do anything but a stair-step thing. Usually on the top of the ziggurat was like a tent structure, and that's where 
the deity was. If it was Yahweh, it was Yahweh. If it was, you know, some other deity like Baal or otherwise, that's, that's what it looked like. Does this look familiar to y'all? What's it look like? Pyramids. Yeah. Who said pyramids? Exactly. Yeah, every culture had its kind of temple structures to reach to the heavens, right? They're trying to reach to God. It was their way of trying to get to God, to honor God, wanting to build a place where God would come down and inhabit and dwell with mankind. So you see this uh, picture over and over again. So uh, after Babel, there's no one location like Eden. Babel is man's attempt to create a sacred space. And they were dispersed from the original, and they were given the command. You remember what the command was when they left Eden? Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Well, what do they do? Instead of being dispersed and scattered, they settle down. They start their own project, and God says, no, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. Uh, they settle and, and, and try to make a place for God to inhabit. So... Uh, Every culture has these structures. They may not look exactly like that, but the pyramids look like this. And so they all have a structure where they're trying to get to God. Uh, all right, next slide. Thank you. So what is going on here? What are, they, what are they trying to do? This is something, this is not an actual Egyptian picture, but it, it, I like the picture. This is called world tree thinking. All right, so... Humans know intuitively that God is not like us, that he is supernatural and powerful. And so if we're going to build a dwelling for God, it has to be off the ground. It has to be beyond what we are. So this place at the top is supposed to be the dwelling of God, all right? And then the tree continues to reach into the heavens, and then the roots of the tree go into the ground. That's important that you understand when you're reading Genesis, uh, all right, it's an imagery of an axis running through the top of that tree, right, through the center, and it unites heaven, earth, and everything under the earth. Does that sound familiar to anybody? What about Exodus 20 and 4? I didn't give you all the scriptures here. Oh, he did. Thank you so much. He said, you shall not make yourself a graven image to worship or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now, if you read the King James, it doesn't say or in the water under the earth. It says under the earth. So that's, the, that's a biblical cosmology. Above the earth, on the earth, under the earth. Well, what would under the earth be? It would be the Sheol and the departed spirits of the dead, right? Don't make any image of those three areas. So here's some other places before we get into the Old Testament. So mountains were considered the abode of God. Gardens, lush gardens, oases were considered the abode of God. Well, why a mountain? Why a mountain? Well, it's inaccessible. It's private. People don't live there. They didn't have all the rigging equipment to go mountaineering like we do, right? You didn't go up there. It's cold up there. There's no food up there. God lives up there, right? He can, he can withstand the elements, but we can't. So they began to say, you know, that's where God is. And then gardens are oases. Because remember, they live in a semi-arid region. A lot of desert, a lot of dry areas too. So why would he live there? Because an oasis is obviously would be God's abode. He would be where there's lots of water and greenery and all that stuff. 
Now, these are very ancient ways of thinking that are underlying the Genesis and Exodus story. All right, so how does God appear to Abraham and the patriarchs, okay, in the space between Eden, Babel, and ultimately the tabernacle? I think it's the next slide, my friend. That's okay. Genesis 12, 6. Now, this is important. If you'll watch this in your Bible, this is incredible. I had never seen this before. So, Genesis 12, 6 and 7, it said, Abram passed through the land to the locality of Shechem, to the oak or the terebinth tree of Morah. Morah in the Hebrew means the tree of the teacher. He went to the tree of the teacher. What happened? And the Canaanite was in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give you the land for your posterity. So Abraham built an altar there. Where? At the tree, at the terebinth tree, where God appeared to him. Why is a tree important? Why does God choose that for sacred place? It goes back to the world tree thinking. It has branches that reach into the heaven, has a trunk on the earth, and has roots that are under the earth. It's all three areas of Hebrew cosmology in their mind. Right? You with me so far? Stay with me. It'll get better, I promise. You say, where are you going? We're going to get there. So, many Hebrews were buried beneath trees. Fine, sacred space. Because it's somewhere where God appeared, God gave direction, so they'd build an altar there many times. Right? Genesis 18 and 1. I'm going to read this to you. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks or the terebinths of Mamre. Right? As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. This is 18. This is right where he's going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. So where does he appear to him? At a tree. Same world tree thinking. Right? Heaven, earth, and under the earth are united at that place. So God appears there. Genesis 21, 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Why would he do that? Because that's where God's appeared to him. Why wouldn't you plant a tree? If you want to have communion with God, God has come to you at a tree. So he's trying to reach out back to God. He plants a tree. Uh, what furniture in the, in the tabernacle or the temple is shaped like a tree? The menorah. Do you, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when you get to the tabernacle and the temple, if you look at the tapestries and the carvings and the kind of uh, animal skins that are used, all that is hearkening back to Eden. I mean, there are palm trees, there are pomegranates, there are dates. Some of them are bales on the bottom of them. All that is taking, what the Hebrew mind is trying to do is he's trying to tell you something now, but he's taking you back to there. What are we trying to do? We're on a process with God to get back to Eden, to get back to paradise. We're on a journey with God that takes us back to paradise, right? I'll give this away, all right, so that you'll stay with me because this takes some time to develop. If you go to the new Jerusalem, what do you see, right? Tree of life is there, isn't it? You see gold, right? It's just what, remember the dimensions of the new Jerusalem? You remember the dimensions of the holy place? I mean, the inner, I'm talking about where the Ark of the Covenant was, Remember? Yes, remember that one? 15 cubits by 15 cubits by 15 cubits. 
The New Jerusalem is 15 miles by 15 miles by 15 miles. It's just an enlarged holy of holies. That's why if you go to the book of Revelation, it will say this, that the dogs and the sexually immoral cannot go into the gates of the New Jerusalem. It's a holy place for holy people. I'm not saying your holiness earns you entry, but as a generality, there must be some level of holiness. Okay? There can't be gross, unrepented sin for people to go into the New Jerusalem. It's the Holy of Holies. Right? It's just an expanded vision of that. That's all that it is. So Joshua 24, 25, and 26 says, So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Why would an oak tree be the sanctuary of the Lord? Right? You start to see this. If you'll start to mark this in your Bible, you'll be surprised over and over. Because what are we trying to do? We've been kicked out of Eden. Babel, he confused the languages. We're on a journey to a land he will show us. Right? And we're trying to get back to Eden. We're trying to get back to paradise. So all these things are taking your mind back to paradise, to a garden situation. Judges 6.11 says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Orphrah. Isn't that interesting? Or the terebinth tree, if you're in the King James. That belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it for the Midianites. Another place that you'll see supernatural things are threshing floors. Right? Threshing floors. Look at over and over. If you're reading your Old Testament, look at what happens at threshing floors. The angel of the Lord showed up to Gideon at a threshing floor. What? He was hiding threshing wheat. What's so interesting about a threshing floor? Well, that's where you take the whole stalks of grain, barley or whatever you're using, and, and you use usually an animal to over the top of them to, to, to drag something heavy, and it starts separating. Then from there, you take it and you winnow it. So why is that holy? Because that's a place where we get from the fluff to the real stuff. Yeah. Right? We find out if you're the real deal in the threshing floor. When we're pressing grapes and the oil comes out. What happens in the pressing? That's the anointing. You understand? We're on a journey to God to be more like Him and have a closer relationship. That requires threshing. That requires pressing for us to be eligible for sacred space. You following me? Okay. So let's get on to something better. Okay. <laughs> Mountains. First mountain. The next place you see sacred space is a mountain, Mount Sinai, right? The presence of God comes out. Thunder and lightning and smoke and burning fire and thick cloud, right? It's his mountain. He said, where my presence is, this is holy. What did he tell the people? Don't touch that mountain. Because in the day you touch it, you will die, right? And then what do they have to undergo before, the, before they're ever able to, Moses is going up. They have to go uh, three, three days of ritual purification, right? What do they do? They take off all their jewelry and all the stuff they got out of Egypt, all that they'd become to identify with, you know. They said, we're just a servant of God. None of this matters. This is not our identity. We're about to go have an encounter with a holy God, and we have to be ready for that. We can't just rush into his presence. So 
That's the place where God meets face to face with Moses and gives him the law. The place is so holy that before Moses ascends, the people have to have a three-day purification to be ready, to sanctify themselves, okay? And they're, they're, they're prohibited under penalty of death, of touching even the border of the mountain. Does this sound familiar to y'all? So we're talking about trees. Where's the first place that God shows up to Moses? Burning bush, huh? So the oaks and the terebinths of Mamre, of Mora, burning bush. You're starting to see some. They're trying to get, they're not trying to tell you exactly what it is. They're trying to give you patterns. So when you start seeing this, your mind starts making the connection. That's mythic or abstract thinking. They're trying to take your mind somewhere else. You with me? Some of you are, and some of you are like, I don't know. <laughs> so all sacred spaces are a, mind, a reminder of Eden. They all are. They all have the elements of Eden in it, trees and, and fruit and flowers and carvings of, of, of bears and lions and all the stuff. I mean, it was ornate what they put into the tabernacle and the temple. So let's look at some of the, uh, the, third, the third sacred space was the tabernacle. So it's a tent structure. Remember I said at the top of the ziggurat, they would have a tent. That's where Yahweh was. This is very interesting stuff here. What's the deal with the tents? Remember they said when they got the tabernacle, it says that Yahweh would make his dwelling there. The word in the Hebrew is mishkan. Make his dwelling, right? And then later he said, I'm going to put my name and I'm going to shikon, I'm going to tabernacle there. My presence is going to be in that place, right? It's as the divine abode, the tabernacle is analogous to Eden. It's got all these beaver skins and all these skins of animals and ornate tapestry and stuff. It's made to look like a garden on the inside of the holy place. So why this garden association? We've already talked about the menorah. It has the appearance of the tree, uh, the cherubim. Where do we see cherubim for the first time? No? Come on, you got to go further back. Right, in the garden, what happened? Yeah, there's an angel that had a sword, a drawn sword, turned every way and guarded the way back to Eden. So now we get back so guarding Eden is a supernatural host, right? Inside the tabernacle on the Ark of the Covenant are two cherubim with their wings reached out this way looking down at the mercy seat, right? So we see them in the garden. We see them in the tabernacle. What else was in the tabernacle? Lots of gold, onyx stone. Where do you see that? Genesis 2.12, where the garden was. This is the place of the, where there was Havilah, where there was lots of gold and onyx stone. They're taking stuff out of the Eden area and put it back there. This is sacred space. It's a different place, but this is where God is. This is where you encounter the living God, the only God, right? All right, next one. Yeah, it's decorated with trees, flowers, tapestries, carving that all harken back, right? I didn't know this. When you get to the temple, I did not know this. <laughs> I feel bad. So, you know, you have two cherubim 
their wings touching, extended like this with their face on the mercy seat. In the temple, behind, directly behind the mercy seat, there were two cherubim standing straight up with their wings touching like this. Come up here, Dyer. Maybe you can help me show them this. Maybe this will be the ark, okay? That's the ark. And then we're like right behind it like this, okay? And so we've got, there's two cherubim like this. What does that look like to you? Between our hands is a throne. The ark becomes the footstool of God. Right? That's what they're, what's they're, they're trying to show. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Right? That's what they're trying to show you. This is, this is not just sacred space. This is his throne. This is where he sits. This is where he rules. This is where he reigns. This is sacred space. Even in the old time with monarchs. Remember, you, you remember, um, oh, help me. Let my mind go. Uh, Esther. Was it Esther? Not Esther. Yeah. She, she was afraid to go into the presence of the king, right? You couldn't just walk in there, right? That's it's where he rules. That's his space. Even though he's not divine, she was afraid, if I go in there and he doesn't raise the golden scepter, I die. So you, you take that and multiply it by 10,000 and you're starting to get close to how they saw the holy place and the sacred space. So, uh, yeah, the next one I think is uh, Mount Zion, I think, right? The promised land. Well, good. We didn't go through that. Thank God. <laughs> so the temple promised land. The promised land was viewed as sacred space. Did you know that? Absolutely. Remember I told you last week, what happens, what happens when sin or idolatry was prevalent in the nation? If it just continued, what happened? God says, look, this is holy place. You've polluted the land. You've defiled the land. Either you have to leave or I have to leave. I can't coexist with this. They went into captivity, right? And then if you notice in Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10, if you'll read that, they're in captivity, but the remnant was back, right, that was still there that didn't get taken into captivity, started bringing their idols into the gate, into the inner court, in, out by the, and they get closer and closer until they're in the holy place. And if you watch the movement of the presence of the glory of God, it's over the ark. When they start getting closer to the tabernacle, it moves over the threshold. And then at the end, it moves out of the city. Because God said, I can't coexist with that, with idolatry. I am the Lord God. I am the only one, you know. And so he moves out. So either they have to go into captivity so that the land could be cleaned, right, while they're away, and then they can come back. Because the land is considered sacred space. So... In Joshua 5, this is interesting. I want to show you this. You remember, they're about to go in. Joshua's coming in with a new generation. You remember what they had to do before they could go into the promised land? Come on, students. I'm giving you a chance. This is a gold star if you get this. Huh? Before they, before they could go in, everybody born in the wilderness have to be circumcised. Why? Because they're going into sacred space. You have to be covenant with the God who dwells in sacred space. Right? I mean, even, even Moses, right? or, or Joshua, I'm sorry, even Joshua had to be 
uh, circumcised, right? And then this interesting thing happens in Joshua. So they had to sanctify themselves to be prepared for sacred space, right? And then this interesting thing happens in Joshua 5, 13 through 15. I'll read it to you. It said, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, he raised his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our enemies? And he says, no, rather I've come now as the captain of the army of the Lord or the Lord of hosts. And Joshua fell on his face to the ground and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Watch this. And the captain of the Lord's army said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. They're about to go into sacred space. You got to take your shoes off. You're going in where God abides. You're going into his turf and his territory. You had to be circumcised and you got to take off your shoes. Anybody remember where this comes from? Moses in the burning bush, right? God says, take off your shoes at this bush. This is sacred space. This is God's turf. You can't just stand there and go, oh, this is cool. <laughs> Make sense? You understand why worship is important when we're in his presence? Wonder why reverence is important. We're in because where we gather, those of us who are filled with the Spirit, we are sacred space now. We're sacred space. That's why I can't talk about my brother or sister because I'm defiling sacred space. I'm not just unloving and not a good Christian, I'm defiling sacred space. Let me give you something incredible here that I found that wasn't in Clowen's book. And I alluded to this last week. So if you go to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 has the Day of Atonement. They took two goats, right? One they called the scapegoat. That's really not what the word means in Hebrew. It says one of the goats was for Yahweh. That goat was killed and the blood was put on the altar and on the mercy seat. The other, he laid his hands on him. And proclaimed all the sins of Israel. And they were sent him out. Why? Is it, why? Out into the wilderness. Why? Because you can't stay in sacred space with all that sin. You got to get out. Right? So, so I'm, I'm reading this. And I'm like. And if you read that. It says. One of the goats is for Yahweh. The one that's slain. The one that's called the scapegoat. Which is not what it means. It means this goat is for Azazel. Azazel is a Hebrew word for a wilderness demon. Okay? So one is for Yahweh to purify. It's like a reset button to purify the altar, the tabernacle, and all that. And to make it ritually clean again. This one is about the sin of the people. And we send all that impurity out into the wilderness where the demons live. Not where Yahweh is. Yahweh can't dwell with that. Guess what? I got... In the New Testament, where Paul has this thought in mind. So you remember in 1 Corinthians, he writes to them and he said, I hear that there's a young man who's sleeping with his dad's wife and they're unmarried and it's open. What does he say to do to him if he doesn't repent? Turn him over to Satan. Where does he get that idea from, right? That's the go for Azazel because where we gather is holy space. 
case. So if you allow that to continue and you don't deal with him, and there's a process in Matthew 18, right? You go to him. If he doesn't hear two or three witnesses, if not, you take him in front of the, the whole church, right? Because what God is saying is if you allow that to go on knowingly and openly and unrepentantly, either I have to leave or they have to leave. Which would you like? That makes sense? Now think about this. <laughs> Later, there are two heretics named Hymenaeus and Alexander. You remember them? You know what they taught? You remember the heresy? That the rapture had already occurred. The rapture has already taken place, right? Paul deals with this in several places. He deals with it in 2 Thessalonians. He said, that day shall not come until the man of sin, the son of perdition, be revealed. To who? The church. That's the, it's got, we've got to at least be here until the abomination of desolation. That's what he's trying to teach against. What does he say? He says, hand Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan to teach him not to blaspheme. He's thinking they can't stay in the church. They either have to leave or I have to. Remember, he says something similar to the churches in, uh, in Revelation, right? He said, I got some good things. I got some things against you. You need to take care of this and repent or I'll remove your candlestick, your sacred space. You can't let that go on. Okay, now understand that's not to be harsh on new people who are struggling. But if you have somebody who's openly and defiantly living in sin unrepentantly, God says, your sacred space, you're going to affect my manifestation among you if you allow that. So, 1 Samuel 5 and 5. Now, this is cool right here. I'm going to read this to you. So, you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was, was captured? And they took it into the house of Dagon, right? Into the temple of Dagon. And they came in to check on the next morning. Dagon is headless and armless. And where? He's over the threshold. Watch this. I hadn't seen this before. It says, For that reason, neither the priests of Dagon nor any inner Dagon's house... Step on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day, or the day of the writing. What, what, what is that about? Why are they avoiding the threshold where Dagon fell? Well, they understand sacred space, even though they're not uh, Hebrews. So the place they found Dagon was now ground that Yahweh owned. He had defeated Dagon, knocked him down, Right? So they're thinking, we're not Yahweh's worshipers, therefore we will not walk on his turf, else we end up like Dagon. Isn't it amazing that pagans have more respect for sacred space than us? Yeah. They said, oh no, I, we understand what that means. Yahweh is greater than Dagon. He knocked Dagon down, crumbled him up, he fell on there. He said, when we go in, we go in another door. We don't even mess with that. They understood it. They understood exactly what it signified. It wasn't just a fun story, right? So, where is sacred space now? Because I only got a few minutes. When Jesus came, he's sacred space. And this is what, this is what was difficult for the Hebrews to understand of his time. 
was hard because that was such an important part of them, an important part of their history, you know, to go from Eden to these trees to Babel to a tabernacle to a second temple that was rebuilt, you know, after the first was destroyed. It was very important, and that's the presence of God. We, we, everywhere else, we're sacred space. Everywhere else, the manifestation of God is not. And so when you read the book of John, John portrays Jesus not only as revealing the divine presence, but also replacing the temple as the central location of the divine presence. They had a hard time with that, okay, that he's replacing the temple. The point is that Jesus has come as the fulfillment of all the plans and the purposes of all this stuff I'm showing you, okay? Now, he's sacred space. I want to show you this, Nathaniel. You remember when he talks to Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, I saw you were under the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, wow, yeah, I follow you. I believe in you now, right? In, in, in John 1.51, Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's interesting about that is that never happens. We don't have a history that that ever happened. So why does he tell him that? Who, what is he trying to tell him? Where's the last place you see angels ascending and descending? Jacob. He said it was a ladder. Was it a ladder? No, it was a ziggurat. If you read that where it is in Hebrew, it's a ziggurat. What is he saying? I am the sacred space. I am Jacob. Who became Israel, right? I am the new Israel. I am the new temple. I am sacred space. God dwells in me. You don't have to go to the temple. Right? What happens? Jacob sees God at Bethel, right? He sees that, builds an altar there because he has an experience with God. That's sacred space for him, right? Then he wrestles with God. What, what's interesting about this is he's, what he's saying is, remember, Israel was the son of God, so to speak. So Israel, the people, were called the son of God. Remember when Moses comes to Pharaoh, and what does he say? He says, let my son go that they may go worship. Jesus is saying this statement to draw your attention back to there. He said, ah the son of God that's what he's saying I'm the son of God I'm Israel and then he goes a step further in John 2 19 remember he answered them he said destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up you know they were like you're an idiot you're a moron it took like 50 years to build doofus right he said but they knew all right it took us 46 years to build this temple and yet you'll raise it up in three days but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. I'm the temple of God. I'm sacred space. Matter of fact, I'm so much superior to the temple that if you took a leprous person into the temple, it would defile the temple. But I'm so superior to the temple that when I touch a leprous person, I'm not defiled, they're healed. Now you're getting it? 
right? Blind people couldn't go into the temple because that would defile the temple, right? Jesus put his hands. He touched them purposely. He could have healed them with a word, but he wanted to show what defiled that place. I'm so much superior to that that I can touch them and not be defiled and heal them. All this language that Jesus uses is transferred to us as believers, right? 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, know ye not that you are the temple of God. He that defileth the temple of God, him shall God destroy. What's he saying? Your sacred space. Your sacred space. Yes, even unbelievers are made in the image of God, so we should give them respect and kindness. But we should give believers even greater respect because they are sacred space. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We should not backbite. We should not talk about. We should not put down. We are defiling sacred space when we do that. All right? That's why you see, that's why where we gather too, especially at least two of us, there I am in the midst. Remember he said, uh, I, will, I will inhabit the praises of my people. You know what that says in Hebrew? I will be enthroned on the praises of my people. Your praises are like the two cherubim that were standing behind the Ark of the Covenant. That's where I'm seated. That's where I rule. That's where I reign. That's where my power is released. That's where my authority is. Where you're giving me the authority I deserve, I manifest my authority. I tried. So, yeah, Jesus touched many ritually impure people, but instead of making him ritually impure, he healed them. He's saying, I'm superior. Go read the book of Hebrews now. What do they say? He's superior to the offerings. He's superior to the high priest. He, he's so much. Remember I told you last week there were three sins in the Old Testament that there was no sacrifice for, right? Murder. Idolatry, sexual sin like rape, incest, right? Adultery. Capital punishment or exile. That was it. But with the blood of Jesus, those sins are covered. With the blood of Jesus, there is a sacrifice for that. That's why he's superior to all that. Yeah, I, I, I told you last week, I've been wanting to grab an Orthodox Jew and go, did you realize if you commit one of these three, you're done as a Jew? You, you are cut off from the people. Now, you may not be since there's no temple and everything's kind of understanding, but if you're going back to the Bible, you're done. You have to leave Israel's sacred space or God has to leave. So, so if you've ever committed fornication or adultery, right? There's no sacrifice for you. There's nothing, there's no remedy to that. There's no way to purify you. So defiled yourself, you don't have a right to be in covenant with God. But with Jesus, you can deal with that. Amen? Praise God. Stand with me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus is re- when do you see the the cherubim again? When Jesus is resurrected, right, sitting on the tomb. 
Jesus talks to Mary, what does she suppose he is? Why in the world would she think he's a gardener? He's going back to Eden. He's the way back. He's the way back. You know that that cherubim that stood like this with a flaming sword that turned every way? He made a way where there was no way. Right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. Now you start to get it, right? When these things start to pop off in your head, then all of a sudden as you're reading the Old Testament, you're going to make these connections. He satisfied the wrath of God. So now there's a way back into sacred space where before there was none. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.